entire Israelite community departed from Elam and came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the fifteenth day of the second month after they had left the land of Egypt, the entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted, instead he brought us into this wilderness to make the whole assembly die of hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. This way I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, when, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to the Israelites, This evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the Lord's glory, because he has heard your complaints about him. For who are we that you complain about us? <clears throat> Moses continued, The Lord will give you meat to eat this evening, and the bread you want in the morning, for he has heard the complaints that you are rising against him. Who are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses and Aaron, <clears throat> then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. As Aaron was speaking to the entire Israelite community, they turned towards the wilderness, and there in the cloud the Lord's glory appeared. The Lord spoke to Moses, I have heard the complaints of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will eat bread until you are full. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God. Thank you, brother. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you today as people who long to exalt you and to lift high the name of Jesus. Lord, I, I pray that, that from our hearts, those words that we sung together have, have ascended to you and we, we live to exalt you. We live to lift high your great name. You are a compassionate and gracious God. You're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Lord, we come before you to give thanks, to call upon your name, to proclaim your deeds among the peoples. We long to boast in your holy name, Oh, may the hearts of those who seek you rejoice. May we seek you, Lord, and your strength. Seek your face always and to remember the wondrous works you've done. We come before you today and ask that you would speak to our hearts as, as we reflect a little bit upon the wondrous works that you accomplished there in the wilderness among your people. And as we see the, the way in which you brought deliverance, made great provision for their need. May we be reminded that you are, you are the God who takes care of our needs. May we be reminded to seek you as the God who sustains us as the Israelites were sustained by the bread in the wilderness. Give us hearts that are ready to hear your word, hearts that long to hear and to obey. 
to walk in your truth, oh God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, I want to invite you, if you haven't done so already, to find that passage that Joshua just read for us from Exodus chapter 16. And the title of today's message is Bread from Heaven. And, and it, in the end here, we're going to see that it's not ultimately about the bread. Uh, some of you may remember a video that was circulating on YouTube about 10 years ago. Uh, about a husband and wife who were, who were sitting on a couch, and this wife was complaining about this severe pain and aching that was in her head. And as you, as you panned, as the camera panned, you could see that there was a, a huge nail sticking out of her forehead. And her husband kept trying to interrupt as she was going on and, and just said, but hey, I don't know if you know this, but there's a, there's a nail in your head. And she kept, she kept shushing him and saying, listen, I, I, I don't want you to... Like, don't keep talking to me about this nail. I just need you to listen to me. I just need you to hear me. And he kept saying, but I, I know, but if you just dealt with, and, and each time he would bring, try to bring up the nail, it was, it was shushed. And, and what she was trying to communicate is, I don't want you to be here to, to fix my problem. And so finally, he was sort of exasperated and, and listened to her carry on about her pain and, 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 and all the sweaters she had that had been snagged. And, and she, he finally said, that must be really hard. And her, her face lit up and her shoulders just stooped. She said, thank you. It is really hard. I feel understood. I feel heard. And uh, every husband and wife has had that drama sort of play out where the husband's trying to fix the problem. The wife just says, I just want to be heard and understood. And at the end of the, cap, at the, end of the, the video, the caption says, it's not about the nail. And, uh, and so as we, as we look at Exodus chapter 16, we're not, we're not going to talk about marriage today, but we are going to talk about bread. But at the end of the day, it's, it's not really about the bread. It's not really about the Israelites getting some food to fill their physical bellies in the wilderness. It's a much deeper story than that. And so as we look together at this story on bread from heaven, we're going to see a few things. And the first thing that jumps out immediately is, is the Israel's complaining. It, it, Israelites' complaint uh, is, is front and center as we start this chapter, it says um, it's been a little over a month since they came out of Egypt. They've already started complaining at the end of chapter 15. We see that, uh, that they had complained over water. And now here in chapter 16, uh, verse 2 says, The entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And they said, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt. When we sat by pots of meats and ate the, all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us in this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. Now, before we talk a little bit about their complaining, I just want to say this. Let's, let's cut them some slack a little bit. Because uh, they're in the wilderness. Um, they, it's the desert, my friends. If you've never been to a desert before, uh, it's not a hospitable place. And so you can understand that like, they don't have pantries. They don't have... Uh, like a meal plan or anything like that. So you can sort of understand how they might get to a point already where they're, where they're complaining a little bit. And, and I also just want to add this. Um, there are certain types of complaining that's okay. We're going to see that this complaining was different. There are certain types of complaining in Scripture that God's okay with. You, you can read in the Psalms how David, like a Psalm 64 or Psalm 142, there's these heartfelt groanings 
and crying out to God, sort of, where are you, God? What's going on, God? I don't understand this, God. There's this, there's this crying out to God that comes in the form of complaint or like, have you forgot about me, God, that, that seems to be okay and acceptable. And then there's sort of the shaking your fist at God, this rebellious hearted complaining. And that's what the Israelites are doing here. And this is not okay. And, and what this reveals here as the Israelites begin to complain is it, it reveals that they had, first of all, had a, had a bit of a distorted view of their needs. Right? Do you ever get in this, this place? You ever been there? Uh, your kids, they, they had lunch, and it's like 2 o'clock, and they come to you, and they're like, I'm going to die. <laughs> I am starving to death. The line that I, have, I, I use on, on my kids now, and they, they absolutely hate it, but I still use it, is like, listen, I am an expert on not allowing kids to starve to death. I've been doing this almost 21 years now of children under my roof. I have a 100% track record of not allowing them, allowing them to die of hunger. So I promise you, you're not going to die. You've heard that, haven't you, Owen? <laughs> they had a distorted view of their needs. Like, literally, like, okay, the, the verse three said that they had just come out with their flocks, okay? They had, they had animals, they had livestock. They, they had the ability to have milk and make cheese and they, they could have slaughtered some of their livestock. So they weren't going to actually die. But, you know, sometimes when things aren't going the way that we want them to, we begin to get a twisted view of our needs. This is the, this is the gateway to a complaining heart before God, to an unthankful heart. You lose sight of all the other good things God's doing, and you hone in on this one thing that's not going right, on this, this one illness that hasn't been healed, or this one need or perceived need that's not been taken care of, or you don't have what your neighbor has, or whatever it is, and you think, man, God, have you completely forgotten me? We can be so forgetful at how God has taken care of us, loved us, provided for us. And we hone in on this one thing in this one point in time. And we, we think, oh, my goodness, God doesn't care anymore. Their complaining revealed a distorted view of their needs. The Israelites often confused what they wanted with what they needed. This this is frequently the source of our discontent, thinking that our greeds are really our needs. And the Israelites fell into that trap. But this complaining revealed a distorted view also of their life in Egypt. Look at, look at verse 3. This is what they said. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt. So they actually, they actually said dying would be better than this. Like If only God had just killed us off. That's how our mind can go. We can just run with these things sometimes. But look what it also says. We were in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and we ate all the bread we wanted. Life in Egypt was so good. Like, they've only been out of there about a month or so. And already they have, they have sort of twisted things into their mind that being enslaved... Being slaves was better than their current situation. How messed up is that? And, and, and not only that, but they, I, they had to have distorted reality. You're telling me that as slaves who were, when you read the story, clearly mistreated, that they actually sat by pots of meat and they ate all the bread they wanted? 
You're kidding? That, that, that wasn't reality. But looking backwards, that's how their mind sort of reshaped their, their previous life. This is exactly what happens to us when we begin to look back in, in, in our old life before Christ. When we, we can begin to look back at sin or maybe we look back at those who, who are without Christ and they're doing things and you're like, man, that looks kind of fun. Like, what was, why is God like having me skip out on this life? This, this, there's so much excitement. It was so good back then. This is why the Apostle Paul, when you read the New Testament, has to keep reminding you over and over and over again, don't turn back to your life of slavery. Romans 6 actually talks about it in those terms. You were slaves to sin. What fruit did you have from those things of which you're now ashamed? I think that's verse 21. He says, don't don't go back to that old life. But there can be times in our walk with the Lord. I mean, we, we wouldn't be tempted to sin if it didn't look good in the moment. The Israelites here were thinking and they're reflecting and they're like, man, Egypt was good. I wish we were back there. That's exactly how the enemy works. He wants you to have a distorted picture of God's care and provision and protection. And he wants you to look back at where you've come from and, and have a distorted reality and, and say, you know, maybe it wouldn't be so bad going back to Egypt. This, this story here reminds us that it was easier to get them out of Egypt than to get the Egypt out of them. They had been set free from slavery, but the temptation to go back into slavery was still in their hearts, that longing for Egypt. They do this again in the book of Numbers, and they said, we remember the free fish we ate in Egypt, along with the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. Remember having a teacher at Bible college using that as a metaphor for sin. He's like, so often as believers, we want the leeks and the garlic of Egypt. We think that it's going to taste better. We think that going back into a life of sin and slavery is, is a better way to live. And that's exactly the way the enemy wants you to live, to live in bondage, to live in slavery. Not only does their sin reveal and their complaining reveal a, a distorted view of their needs, a distorted view of what it was like in Egypt. It reveals a distorted view of God. If you look at verse 8, um, it says at the end, Moses is, is sort of coming after them. And he says, your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. They had, they had blamed Moses and Aaron and said, you guys brought us out here. And Moses said, you're, you're really not complaining to us. You're complaining against God. They, they, they had forgotten what God had done. They, 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 their situation and their, their myopic focus on food and where is it going to come from and what are we going to eat had completely overshadowed all that God had done and the fact that God had faithfully led them and provided for them and miraculously delivered them every step of the way. For goodness sakes, as they were talking to Moses, they could look up in the sky and see a freestanding pillar or column of smoke or fire, depending on whether it was day or night, to be a visual, visible reminder that it was God the one leading them. And they're here complaining to Moses and Aaron, and they're complaining that, that they don't know what they're doing. In a sense, the text is saying, listen, you're saying God doesn't know what he's doing. God can't be trusted. God cannot be relied upon. 
My brothers and sisters, when we develop a heart of grumbling and complaining, it reflects all of these things. It reflects a distorted view of our previous life. It, it, it reflects a distorted view of God and what he's up to. God calls us to be people who are thankful, to be people who, who regularly remind ourselves of his faithfulness and his goodness to us. So we see, first of all, God's or the Israelites' complaint. But then the second thing we see is God's test. God's test. Dude, the book of Deuteronomy is critical to understanding the book of Exodus. So you, you, you know the story, right? So Israelites are in bondage in Egypt. They're brought through the Red Sea. They're brought into, into uh, the wilderness. And that's the state where we are here in the story. And you know what's going to happen. They're going to be out there for a while. They're going to get the Ten Commandments. They're going to get the law. And then they're going to disobey God and rebel against God. And so he says, all right, you're going to spend 40 years wandering the wilderness. And you're not going to get to see the promised land. Your kids are going to be the ones going in because you've not believed me. You've not trusted me. And Deuteronomy sort of recaps a lot of these things and helps us understand what was going on. And if you look at Deuteronomy 8, you can turn there. We'll also have some of the verses on the screen. Moses is, is sort of recapping things, and, and he reminds them of some of the things that God has been up to and why God allowed these things to happen. In Deuteronomy 8, he talks about this story of manna being provided, this whole picture here. And, and look at what we find out that God was up to. He humbled you by letting you go hungry. Then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your ancestors had not known. Look at the purpose here. So that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God was not just randomly making their life hard. God had a purpose behind bringing them into this place of testing. He said, I, I, I did this so that you would be humbled before me. And so that you would know that, that you don't live simply by having a full belly. You live by the word of my mouth. A couple thousand years later, someone else was going to quote this passage as he was tempted in the wilderness. You see, when we are in the middle of something, it's easy to begin to doubt God's goodness. It's easy to begin to wonder if God really cares and if he's forgotten us or if he's just angry and making our life miserable because he's not, got nothing better to do. But these passages remind us and, and the whole council of scripture reminds us that God's always up to something. I don't know what you might be going through or what you might be facing, but know that you can trust that God is at work. The Israelites did not have a whole picture of God's 40-year God's plan laid out for them. In the middle of it, it's like, you don't care, we're hungry, and we're going to die out here. That was their state of thinking. But in reality, God was saying, listen, I'm, I'm forging you, I'm, I'm, I'm humbling you, I'm, I'm, I'm teaching you. In fact, verses 15 and 16 of Deuteronomy 8 make this a little more clear. He said, he led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its poisonous snakes and scorpions, a thirsty land where there was no water. He brought water out of the flint rock for you. He fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your ancestors had not known. Look at the purpose. In order to humble and test you so that in the end he might cause you to prosper. <laughs> God had their good in mind. In the end, you might prosper. 
I'm doing things that are good for you. You don't know it yet, but I'm teaching you. I'm training you. In fact, listen, we, we have to understand that we have a God who is at work for our good. He's, he's not out there to make us miserable. Kids, you sometimes wonder that with your parents, like when, they're, when they have rules and they're disciplining you and correcting you. You're like, are you just here so that I can, I can hate life? Like, are you just here to see me squirm? Are you getting joy out of, out of coming down and, and, and making these random rules in my life? Like, and, and as parents, you know that that's, that's not your purpose. That's not your heartbeat. You're doing something in their life to, to help steer them in the right direction. You're at work. In fact, God even uses that, that same picture in Deuteronomy 8. He says, keep in mind, the Lord your God has been disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Parents, we understand this, right? In fact, Proverbs even says, if, if you don't discipline your kid, you hate them. Like you understand that, it's a simple illustration, but when you tell your kids, don't, when they're little, don't go play in the road. They might think, oh, how restrictive, how miserable. I can't go have fun out here in this cool stretch of blacktop. Like my parents want me to miss out on something great. And you're like, no, that's where the cars are. And that's how you'll get hurt. That's how you get killed. Like as parents, you know that you're protecting them. And, and when they're really little, they can't understand that. The, the, the heartbeat behind the rule is, is to help them live right, live safely. And, and God is like, listen, I know things that you don't know. I'm trying to, to bring character into your heart that, that it's not going to come any other way but through trials and testing. God allowed them to go through this so that they might draw nearer to him. Exodus 20, 20, Moses says, don't be afraid for God has come to test you so that you will fear him and will not sin. God brings us into these times of testing for our benefit. It's not for him. It's through passing and failing these tests that, that we learn the nature of obedience that God requires and forging the kind of character that God longs to see formed in our heart. Just, just think about it for a second. None, none, of us, none of us love trials. None of us are on the lookout down the horizon wondering like, oh, I hope I get hit with a doozy by Wednesday this week so that I can really strengthen my prayer life. Like none of us are asking them. But think about this. Think about this. When are the times, has, what are the times that God has, has, has drawn the deepest is forged the deepest character, has drawn the, 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 the most heartfelt prayer from you. If you, were, if, you were, if you were looking for some advice for life, let's say you're a young person and you're trying to make a major life decision and you got two different people you're trying to decide between asking what their, what their counsel, what their wisdom might be. The first person was born with a silver spoon in their mouth and they've never had anything hard in their life. They've had everything done for them. They could always call mommy or daddy and they would take care of their paperwork. They'd register their cars. They'd register them for classes. They'd call the teacher if they didn't get the grade that they wanted. Everything was just taken care of along the way. And now they're, they're a 50-year-old man-child that never had any kind of responsibility, or any kind of hardship or anything difficult. They've always had just things handed to them. Person two is someone who has... Maybe, maybe they, they've had some incredible loss. Maybe they lost a parent at a young age or, or lost a spouse 
uh, has walked through some, some sickness or maybe had an had a, had a adult child walk away from their Lord. Maybe they've known what it's like to, to have to work two or three jobs to make ends meet. You've got two 50-year-old people that you're trying to decide, how, how should I, who should I ask for advice for? Are you going to go through the person who's never had any, anything difficult? Or do you want to walk through the, talk to the person who's, who's been through the fire, who's had to trust God, who's had to depend upon him, who's had to cry out to him and say, God, I don't know how this is going to, this is going to happen. I don't know how you're going to make a way, but here I am to trust you. Those are the moments that God forges the deepest, most beautiful character in our hearts and lives. We don't ever ask for those things to come in our We don't ask to be in the wilderness. We're not praying for uh, no food in the shelves. But it's in those moments that God reminds us that we are absolutely dependent upon him for everything. And just like a father, he's not doing this to be malicious. He's not doing this to toy with you. He's not doing this to make us miserable. He's drawing us close to him. He wants us to come near to him and rest in him in these moments. The last thing we see here in this passage is God's provision. Is God's provision. Verses 6 and 7 say this, back in Exodus 16. This evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the Lord's glory because he heard your complaints against him. Wow, what a powerful picture. You're going to see the glory of God in his gracious provision. God didn't have to do any of this. He could have come down and said, listen, enough with you guys. This is the second time already since we've been out of Egypt that you've whined and complained. Forget you. I'm I'm going to make a covenant with somebody else. We're going to start over. He could have walked away. But in his grace, he said, I'm going to take care of you. Isn't this just like God? How many times have I, have I been at a place where I've been complaining? My faith has been weak. I've been frustrated and disappointed in him and not, not prayed. And, and yet God's still been so good. God still comes in his grace and kindness and love and mercy. He meets us where we are. He meets us in our hardship. He meets us even in the midst of our lack of faith and our lack of trust. Verse 8 tells us that he provided quail that night. And in the morning, he provided manna to eat. This was a miracle of God. Despite some scholars' attempts to find natural explanations for this. I read one this week that said that it was, uh, that manna was simply cicada excretion. I kid you not. Um, <laughs> a plant residue. Uh, the, natural mind, the natural man is going to try and find lots of ways to try to explain away the miraculous. This was God doing an unbelievable, miraculous thing to preserve and protect his people. And he provided for them in the wilderness. The text describes it uh, in Exodus 16, 14 as fine flakes like frost. Uh, verse 31 uh, describes it as coriander seed, uh, white and tasted like wafers made with honey. What it looked like, what it tasted like at the end of the day, it doesn't, doesn't really matter all that much. What matters is that God came through and he provided for them. From that day on, for the next 40 years, Joshua tells us, God would be providing manna from heaven. 
This was their staple food going forth. They were given instructions on how to collect it. Two quarts per individual. They were only supposed to gather as much as they needed for that day. And, 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 and some of them disobeyed and gathered more. And in the morning they found maggots in it and it stunk. They were, on, the, on the sixth day they were supposed to gather twice as much so that they didn't have to gather on the Sabbath. And it was God providing what they needed for that moment. And you know, what this story reminds us is that we have a God who, who says, I'm going to take care of you today. I'm going to provide for you today. This is what Jesus meant in Matthew chapter 6 when he told us to, to pray, give us this day our daily bread. All those listeners on that hillside would have immediately thought of manna in the wilderness. That God provided day by day for the needs of that day. That's why Jesus would go on to say in the Sermon on the Mount, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Don't worry about tomorrow. It has enough cares of itself. God's going to take care of you today. I'm not going to ask you to raise hands, but how many of us struggle with that? That's hard to do. We like to plan. We like to prepare. We like to have our ducks in order. Imagine this. I'm trying to give the Israelites a little slack here. Imagine going to bed every night with empty cupboards. Imagine what that's like. Every night with empty cupboards. Some of you have few kids. Some of you have a lot of kids. Can you imagine saying, all right, kids, let's, let's pray and we're going to trust that God will provide enough for all of us to go to bed tomorrow night with full bellies. And in the morning, there's food laying out on the lawn. And you pick it up. And everybody's got enough to eat that day. But there's only enough for that day. And you go to bed again the next night with empty cupboards. That's the way God wants us to live. Not necessarily literally. Although we can learn a thing or two from our materialism and our abundance. But God wants us to live our lives spiritually and moment-by-moment dependence upon Him. Trusting Him to provide. You have a God who is good. You have a God who cares about your needs. And you have a God who has promised to take care of you each and every day. Those of you with parents, those of you who are parents with kids who are getting older, maybe you're sending them off to college. And you're finding yourself in a new phase where you've got you've to trust them. You can't run things. You can't control things like you thought you could. You never could begin with, but you thought you could. And all of a sudden, you're having to entrust your children to God. Or maybe your job's not as secure as it was last week. And you're not really sure what's in store at work and how your, what your paycheck's going to look like. Maybe, maybe it's with your health and you're discovering that, that you're not as confident about your aches and pains being nothing as you were back in your 30s and 40s. And all of a sudden, you're at a new phase of trusting him with your health that was really all up to him to begin with anyway. God calls us to live in a place where we, we, we prayerfully believe that he's going to take care of our needs each and every day. I told you, though, that at the end, this, this really isn't about manna to fill our bellies. 
This passage reminds us that Jesus is the true manna. You see, when you fast forward to the Gospel of John, there's a scene where Jesus was teaching by the Sea of Galilee. And like every preacher, every good preacher, he was a little bit long-winded, and people started to get hungry. And, and they started to wonder what we're going to do for, for lunch. We've been here a long time. We're not near any supermarkets. And so the disciples are talking to Jesus about this, and he does this miracle. He takes some fish and some bread, and he makes enough to feed 5,000 people out of one boy's lunch. 5,000 men, it says, not, to, not including the women and children on top of that. Jesus does this miracle. The next day he wakes up and he finds out there's this mass of people following him. They're just flocking after him. And he says in John 6, 26, he says, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Jesus is saying, listen, you're here because you know where the bread is. You know where the food is. And you want more of it, food that you don't have to work for. You want to be able to eat till your belly's full and show up again the next day and have the same thing. He says, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Well, they were confused by that. That, that, that wasn't like they're thinking belly bread. They're thinking about not being physically hungry. And so Jesus goes on to explain it a little bit more clearly. And he says, Beginning in verse 30, what sign then are you going to do? Or they say, to the, they say to him, what sign then are you going to do that we may see and believe you? What are you going to perform? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. Just as it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they're saying, how are you going to, how are you going to do this in such a way so that, that our bellies are full and then we can believe that you're, you're who you say you are? And Jesus said, truly I tell you, Moses did not give you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Listen, he says, it wasn't Moses that provided you something to eat. It was God. But furthermore, God is the one who's giving you this true bread. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, sir, give us this bread always. They're like, all right, whatever you're... Whatever you're saying, we'll take that bread. That sounds good. And then Jesus clarified for them, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. And this was too much for many of them. At that point, they began to complain and grumble, the text says. Some of the disciples even walked away because they, they couldn't wrap their mind around having Jesus be their bread. It's ironic, isn't it? One writer says, Jesus, the true bread has come and the people respond by grumbling. Whereas the Israelites grumbled because they had no bread, this crowd grumbles because they do. Even though this bread far exceeds anyone's expectations, it gives eternal life. Not simply filling one's stomach to live another day, and yet they would not have it. This is the only means by which they have any hope to live. In the same way as the manna was the only food to keep the Israelites alive another day, Christ, the bread from heaven, is now the only way to life eternal, to experience true life. You see, the manna in the wilderness, it wasn't really about the manna. It was about daily coming to God, 
for your sustenance. And Jesus comes all these years later and says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. I am what you need to experience true life. And so many of them walked away. My brothers and sisters, Jesus has come and he is the only one who's able to satisfy the deepest needs and longings of the human soul. Sometimes when we talk about eternal life, and I'm guilty of this in my preaching, is that we look at it as if we believe a a list of things, then we get to live forever after we die. But when you read the Gospel of John in particular, when you read the New Testament, but especially the Gospel of John, eternal life is so much more than that. Eternal life is, is a quality of life. It's ex- experiencing abundant life. Yes, we get to live forever after we die. Yes, that's true. If you're, if you're a follower of Christ, you get to live forever after you die. But it begins now. Eternal life begins now. And Jesus said, I'm here so that you can have life. Eternal life isn't just about believing a few things about Jesus. It's about embracing him. That's why he talks about, I am the bread of life. Take me in. This is the picture that is repeated over and over again in the New Testament. The New Testament writers find different ways to talk about it. They talk about walking in the spirit. Uh, Jesus talked about abiding in the vine or being in fellowship with God. It's this living out this, this, I need Jesus. I need to take Jesus in every day. How do we do that? We begin with God's word. We begin to hear his words and meditate on them, chewing on them, turning them over and over. Not just reading through a devotional, reading through a passage and walking away, but allowing us to to take them into our heart. And beyond that, to moment by moment, communing with God through prayer, casting ourselves upon him daily throughout the day. This is why the Apostle Paul says to pray without ceasing. We don't just have a prayer time and then check in again 24 hours later. We live at a place where we're saying, Jesus, I need you. Just like I need bread. I need food each and every day to live. I need to take you in to experience life, to have abundant life, wholeness and fullness. We've, we've in, in, in our Western way of thinking, we've relegated my quiet time to be separate from the rest of my life. In reality, Jesus has called us to live in such a way that we're constantly feeding on him. So for those of you who have a snacking problem like me, who want to snack all day long, just so you know, it's biblical all day long to be feasting upon Jesus through communion with him, through reflecting on his word, through sharing him with others. He longs for us to come to him moment by moment to find our fill. Not of literal bread, not of literal snacks, but of him to find our fullness, to find our, our longings in him and in him alone. Ask God today 
for an awareness and an alertness for what he's doing through these trials in your life, through these hardships, even the little bumps, the little mini trials that go on throughout the day. What are you saying here, Jesus? What are you calling me to do? How do you want me to rely on you? How do you want me to feed on you right now here in this moment when I'm frustrated with this coworker or when I'm, when I'm struggling with this little decision here? Lord, how can I rest in you? And he calls us day by day to cling to him Find our full in the one who is the manna from heaven, the true manna from heaven, the bread of life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, most of us here, to, to at least some degree or another, really love food and we, we love to have a good meal. And, and, and a good meal is, is an occasion to remember your provision and the way you care for our, our physical needs. A good meal is an occasion to remember that you're a, you're a God who, who takes care of his children, who provides. But you want us to even look beyond that spiritual reality this morning. To see the one who is the true bread. God, I pray that we would trust you to provide for our needs moment by moment. That we would... We would trust you in the trials, believing that you're up to something. That we would guard against a heart of complaint and grumbling. And that we would be people who are thankful. But even deeper than those spiritual disciplines, I pray, God, that we would be a people who understand and experience the bread of life. What it means to to have our spiritual hunger satiated in Jesus Christ each and every day. That we would abide in that vine, that we would walk by your spirit, that we would live out this communion, this this attachment to you, this this dependence, just like a, a, a newborn baby depending upon their mother. May we live in such a way where we we, we, we don't dare go anywhere or try anything without a dependence and a reliance upon you. God, I pray that we would experience abundant and eternal life and would understand that you offer to us this to us right now, not just after we die someday, but right now, you call for us to experience this eternal life as we rest in and feast upon Jesus Christ. Lord, draw us near to Jesus today. And in our trials, may we cling to him. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Now the Savior who died, who rose and who reigns, may he grant you joy in the midst of labor, peace in the midst of troubles, hope in the midst of despair, and faithfulness in the midst of temptation. Amen.